0: The sermon text this morning is 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead to people into more and more ungodliness, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will.
1: As I sat there listening, as Casey read the text, I thought there's so much being said right now. and I can only imagine it's hard to kind of process it all. Um, so let me try to let me frame it up for you, if I can. If you've been here for this series, you understand this is kind of Paul's last will and testament. So I, I mean, the, the, usually when a last will and testament is read, people are like waiting for what they might receive and what's being said. Last words matter. I mean, consider if you're in your own in your last stage of living towards dying, and you have certain things to say to people. I mean, can't, you, you know, the intensity of listening is increased. What are they going to say, and how are they going to say it? And so Paul here is preparing this young pastor what life will be like when he's gone. So, so he's trying to prepare him for this apostolic error to be over, Now, listen, the problems that they were facing weren't going anywhere, uh, but but Paul was. And so, Timothy, how will you endure faithfully in the midst of this conflict? And the conflict they're facing, as we've seen, is not simply from outside the church, it's from within the church. Really, much of the New Testament conflict is within the church. It's not from physical or, or governmental opposition. And so he's helping Timothy, how do I stay faithful in the midst of the difficulties that he's surely going to face? Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gave kind of those three pictures about faithfulness. Remember, it was the soldier and the athlete, and the farmer. Well, he gives us three pictures here as well. And these three pictures are kind of to show us what it means, what it looks like, if you will, to be found faithful. So the first picture is, of course, a, a worker, an approved worker, a skilled worker, somebody really good at his craft. Secondly, there's this picture of a household with utensils or pots and pans and stuff, and, and how, the, how the clean vessels are used for honorable use. And then, and then the third picture is a servant, right? A, a servant that knows how to handle conflict in a, in a general way. Uh, so, so those are kind of the three pictures, and if I were to put them into categories for you, I would say this, that faithfulness, both from leadership, but also from membership, faithfulness looks like we handle God's word rightly. We handle God's word correctly. That's, if you're taking notes, that's the first point. We handle God's word rightly. And, and then secondly, we're going to see that we need to flee temptation wisely. We need to flee temptation in a wise manner. And then third and last would be that we want to confront conflict gently. Uh, We will all have conflict. We have it in our families. We have it in our church. We have it in our world. Conflict or um, we want to confront conflict gently. So those will be the three buckets kind of pulling out of the three pictures he gives us. But look with me at 14 to 18 where he speaks about handling the word of God rightly. And I want you to hear it through the guise of Paul here, knowing that these are probably the last few words he'll ever speak to his dearly beloved protege. And here's what he says. He says, remind them, Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good. But only ruins the hearers. Boy, if we get that. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So you see Paul saying, remind them, Timothy. Remind who? Well, probably the faithful men back in chapter 2, verse 2. And they would then they would then remind the membership, remind them, charge them, not to quarrel about words, but rather be focused on reading and understanding God's word rightly. Notice in fifteen, he says, "Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God approved. In other words, handling the word of God rightly, is not necessarily intuitive, it it takes hard work, it's labor, it's difficult to try to understand what God is saying and to apply it to our lives. You know, trying to understand the scriptures is not like reading the USA Today or some kind of paper at a reduced educational level. It it, it takes effort. It takes time. Shortcuts in interpretation and and a casualness or even a laziness with God's word, it's going to not yield a lot of fruit for the reader. But he's saying, be diligent, do your best, try hard. There's an earnestness there. You know, when we approach God's word, there's a, a seriousness there. It, it, there's kind of a, an urgency to get it right. And, and notice the motivation. The motivation, particularly for the preacher, but also for the listener, the motivation is to present yourself to God as approved. That word approved kind of means the testing of like precious metals to discern their value. In other words, we want to do our best so that God is honored. So so a a lot of our preaching, a lot of our teaching, uh, it's not simply we trust that you're going to benefit. That's a major purpose of it. But at the end of the day, the one who is teaching or preaching, he stands before the Lord. And and before God, he'll receive his account. And and so the motivation here, he's saying to Timothy, you're going to stand before God one day. So there's no slouching when you're trying to explain the word of God to people. There's no casualness here. There's an earnestness, a seriousness to it, a joy." but a seriousness. And he he says the one that's approved is the one who handles it rightly. That word rightly means kind of straight. So Paul, the tent maker, would have known the importance of cutting a straight line in the material that he was using to, but but it can be used of other things. A farmer sowing a straight row of seed or a builder, you know, building a straight road. So handling it rightly is explaining the word in a way that you have a straight path to God that you see the truth of God. You know, we have like an orthodontist, you know, works to straighten teeth and orthodoxy or orthodox teaching gives us the straight truths about God. So you really do learn about the nature of God, both his holiness and his love, so that you might live before him rightly. And that takes, you know, work to understand the text, to read different versions, to look at languages and grammar, Uh, to try to look at the history of how a passage has been interpreted, uh, to consider applications that might fit and be appropriate for the audience that you're preaching to. It, It involves, you know, work at illustrations, having illustrations that are helpful at illuminating but not becoming their own sermons. There's a lot of work and diligence in kind of rightly dividing God's Word. At least for a preacher, the old Puritan used to say that preaching is like sweet torture. I mean, it's sweet to see you grow in Christ and to hear, to see you see the word and grow up in it. And it's torturous because it's so laborious. It's difficult. It's hard. You know, you read that and you're like, what did she just say? I say the same thing when I read it. I mean, I read the text. I have no idea what he's saying. And then to try to fashion that in a way that, you know, I've been working on it for 10, 15, 18 hours and you come in and 30 minutes, I'm going to try to explain it all to you. It's a, it's a daunting task. So, so the call here is to rightly divide the word of truth. Some ways to not do it, and this applies to all of us, some ways to not look at God's word, at least in a right way, is this avoiding grumbling about words or arguing or quarreling about words. You know how we can get caught up in this word or that word, and kind of miss the bigger point. You know, quarreling about words is like taking a word like like tongues or baptism of the dead or uh, something that the Scripture may not speak uh, in in deep in deep uh, truth about, but but we really make hay with it. You know, we're going to talk a lot about it. Taking something small in Scripture, and may, it always leads to quarrels and fights and arguments. I think about Jesus when he said that the, when he rebuked the Pharisees, he said, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Now, kosher law, both were unclean to consume. But, you know, we're worried about the minute and we're missing the massive. You know, you were swallowing a camel. How often do we get caught up in these kind of discussions in theology or with friends about very small things in life? And we miss the bigger thing. So I can worry about perhaps the... Uh, I don't know, the, the length of a woman's dress, and yet I'm not even loving my spouse, I right? can get caught up on going five miles an hour over the speed limit, yet I'm not worried about any sort of love that I have for my neighbor. We can be so caught up in theological points that we miss the bigger issue. But it's not just quarreling about words. You notice that empty chatter. A, a bad way or a poor way of handling the word is that chatter is empty babbling. You know, it's when we're too far ahead of our skis. We're talking about things we don't really know. You, you know, you, you hear something that impresses you and you want to go tell everybody what you just learned. This is what he's kind of warning about when we're talking about things we don't know. So the joke of at least the modern age is we look back at the Middle Ages and we laugh at the scholastics who, who debated how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. They actually had those discussions. And it's like, there, there's no value to that. There's no profit to it. And and so what, what Paul is saying is, Timothy, handle the word rightly. Read it straightly so that it leads us in a correct understanding of God. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary, says, Now there are some people who can never be content except that they make their religion a sort of wrangling match. They get a hold of a word in Scripture, and away with it they go. Here shall be another opportunity for them to find fault with the church, or here shall be another occasion for them railing against the preachers of the truth. How delighted they are when they can do this. You know, some folks just like to debate. They like to argue. They like to go to a small point, find a difference, and then explain. That does us no good. But also, there's one more warning he gives about not handling the word rightly, and that is to swerve from the truth. To swerve, that word is like if you can imagine drawing a, a, a string back with a, with an arrow, and the arrow goes off target, it misses the bullseye. And, and this is what he's speaking about: swerving from the truth. Now he references these two disciples, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and um, they were teaching. This is the false teaching that crept into the church. There's always false teaching, kind of working its way into the church they were saying the resurrection had already occurred now what does that mean Well, they didn't deny that jesus had risen from the dead i think they were teaching us they were teaching the group that were their students was that the resurrection had already occurred when you're born again in other words they were saying there's no later physical resurrection So orthodox teaching is that Jesus was raised body and soul. We shall also, our bodies, though buried, will be raised and joined with our souls. They denied that. It's probably like a pre-Gnostic view. And Gnosticism held the spiritual world as valuable and held the material world as evil. We don't have anything to do with the body. And so they would be teaching that, yeah, you were born again. You were raised when you were born again. Uh, don't worry about your body. And what that led people to do was they began, okay, well, if the body's evil, I can do with it what I want because it's not going to stand before God. And so it moved into license immorality, and such. So this idea of bad teaching was leading to bad living. And that's what you find here. Paul speaks about the results. If we don't handle the word rightly, he says that it leads to quarreling, division, fighting. It's like gangrene, he says. Remember this. Bad theology will always lead to bad living. So let me give you an example. If you have this idea the, that just God is a God of love. He's a God of peace. And, and you don't have the right balance of God's holiness in your view of God. Well, then God becomes forgiving of a lot of things that the scriptures seem to indicate that he holds in dis, disrepute. That, that it kind of gives us this blank canvas to just do what we want. And so this errant theology of God can lead to a life that is equivalent in error. Or or take the other side, that you think, well, God is holy and he's justice and there's no mercy or grace in God. Then it's going to move you into a pattern of judgmentalism or legalism and you're going to have a wrong view of God leading to judgmentalism of your peers. So having a straight teaching of God, understanding God as loving and yet just together, holding them in tension, leads to right living. So do you see that these results are ominous for the church if we don't have right teaching? I think Paul uh, was concerned with Timothy being perhaps in fear of all the desertions and the false teaching. That's why I think he gives us 19. Look at 19 with me. He says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, Timothy, handle the word of God rightly. Han- there are many that will not, and it will lead to dissension and division in the church. And it will be like gangrene. Gangrene is this disease of the blood. it spread and affects everything that it touches. This gangrene will spread, but don't. Timothy, don't fear because, look, God's firm foundation will stand. The church will continue on. God knows those who are his. So dark cultural winds and uh, dark winds of morality and theological air blow into the church. And he's saying, stand firm, endure. His firm foundation will stand. When he says the Lord knows those who are his, God's not shocked. He's not surprised by the error of teaching that comes among us. You know, that that phrase that the Lord knows those who are his, it comes from Numbers 16, 26. It's that story of Korah, one one of the Levites, and 250 men. And they all oppose Moses. They're rebellious. They're false leaders. They come against Moses. And what God does is he opens up the earth and swallows them. Korah and two hundred and fifty. He opens up there. Go back and read it this afternoon. Number sixteen, he swallows them. Paul's saying to Timothy, Hymenaeus, Philetus, God can handle them. You recognize God knows. God will preserve His church. People take encouragement from that. The Lord knows those who are His. Those of you who are here and you confess Jesus Christ is the one to save you. Your hope and your security is anchored in Him. God knows who you are. Don't you remember last week? We just spoke about the elect from the foundations of the world. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 9. The grace that he has saved us with was grace given to us before the foundations of the world were formed. God knows those. It is worthwhile confirming that we know that we are his. You know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. I don't want to unsettle anybody. I, I want to give assurance to those who know that you are his. So, so though we face winds of error and doctrine and morality and our culture seems to be coming apart at the seams, we don't need to fear that. If he can swallow up those that oppose the truth, he will surely care for us. So do, do you see the importance of truthfulness of God's word? Do, do you see your need for God's word? You know, we live in a postmodern age. That just simply means that 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 truth itself is being questioned. You know, we have the experience. That's your truth. It's my truth. It, that's a that's a big contradiction. Uh, there's one truth. There's an absolute truth. We live in an age where a lot of these societal foundational principles. What is male? What is female? Uh, what, is, uh, what is marriage? What is parenting? All these things are coming up now for rediscussion as if we're going to humanly construct new meanings for these things. And, and, and we live in an age where the worldviews are changing drastically and quickly. We need the truth of God's word so that we can walk in a manner rightly. We, we need this breaking of the scriptures week after week so that we can be realigned, recalibrated. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was uh, doing his ministry in Luke chapter 4, there was a scene where he had just done some healing and he went away to a desolate place. And then he, um, they come to him because they want him to stay. Here's... The way it goes, When it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well. Here's what he says, For I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus sees himself as sent for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God, saying that God's kingdom has now come in me. I'm establishing God's kingdom on this earth. You need to repent and believe. And and then Jesus began to teach them. Now, they didn't want Jesus to depart. Why? Well, Jesus was like a grocery store and a hospital all baked into one. He could feed the poor. He could heal the sick. They wanted all that he could provide. But Jesus says, it's not why I came. I came to teach. I came to explain God's word. Do we see God's word that way? So when you come on Sunday morning, what's the posture of your heart? I mean, are you receiving the word humbly? You know, it's interesting that the church, the whole design of the church, the pulpit is central to where you are, and you're below the pulpit. You know, God's word being declared, that's the centerpiece of the service. God's word being—and we sit under the word, that we want to adjust our lives according to it. Are you praying for your understanding? Because you read the passage— and you realize all the things being said, it's hard to remember two verses before the verse that you're on. And so I just want to encourage you that, that for us to faithfully endure, it's going to be rightly dividing, rightly understanding God's word in, in a straight and right fashion. That, that isn't moving into quarreling and controversies but it's moving into those things that bring health. You know, the word of God isn't just able to save. It does do that. We saw that in Timothy's life. Remember how Paul said you were raised from infancy with the scriptures. So it does do that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. But the word of God that you hear week in and week out actually is building you up. So Paul, uh, Peter writes in his first letter, he says, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in you may grow up into salvation so you mature through hearing the rightly divided word changing you from glory to glory you ought to be leaving here and you're thinking well how do i view god's word do i find it important am i investing my life into studying it do i change my life according to it so so that as you leave doing justice to the to the word you're being changed by it incrementally Hard to sometimes assess the growth over a month or a week, but not over a year or over years. So so we see the importance of it. So if we're going to endure, we rightly understand God's word. And you have a lot of opportunities here, not just preaching, but the Bible studies, the men's and women's Bible studies, a lot of different avenues for you to grow in your understanding of God's word that you might live in light of it. Okay, secondly, we want to flee temptation wisely. Uh, Look with me at uh, verses 20 to 22. He says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So Paul shifts the picture here, right? We're, we're leaving this idea of an approved worker who handles God's word correctly. And now we're looking at this great house, right? He's moving really from competency to character. He's moving from teaching truth to now living truth. This, this kind of using the house, the imagery of a house, which I would take to be God's people gathered. So we're together, God's people being in a house. And in all of our houses, you have pots and pans. You have vessels. You have utensils that are used. Some are used for special purposes, right? They may be, they may be made of better metals, you know, gold and silver, he says. Maybe that's used to serve dinner, to host a banquet, other utensils are more ordinary, right? They're wooden, they're clay. Maybe they're collecting the trash or collecting waste and taking it out. And what what he's saying here is that be a vessel that is used for honorable purposes. Now, who are the honorable and dishonorable? Is it believers or unbelievers? John Stott wants to argue that it's false teachers and true teachers. I, I don't know. I'd probably make it more applicable to the membership because notice he says, If anyone cleanses himself, he's not talking about leaders here, he's talking about members. If anyone cleanses himself, if you cleanse yourself, you will be used for honorable purposes. Now, what does it mean to cleanse ourselves? Well, I I take it to be explained by verse 22. You know, flee temptation, flee the passions of youth, and then Pursue faith and, or pursue righteousness, faith and love and peace. So that's how we walk in making ourselves fit for the master to use. That we flee youthful passions. When he says flee, I don't think it's a sophisticated thing. I think it's kind of a run. I think it's don't give it a place in your life. Kind of like Joseph running from Potiphar, the woman that was trying to seduce him. I, I think the youthful passions that we're given to run from those. But you don't want to just run anywhere, right? You, 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 want to, you want to, as Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. We want to run and pursue, that is, righteousness and, and faith and love and peace, the fruits of the Spirit. So, so you're, you're wondering, well, what is a, a youthful passion here? Well, my guess, most of us go right to youthful passions or just, you know, sexual desires of of the youth. Well, sexual desires plague the youth and the old. So it's not just that. I think it's broader than that. Youthful passions, I would understand it in the context to be the impetuosity or the, the, the impulsiveness of those who are young. Uh, it, it's, it's the quick rush to judgment. i got to do things my way. i got to make a mark for my life. It, it, it's, it's the youthful sin. It, it, it would involve sexual sin, no doubt about it. One author said it this way. He said, we may conclude from what precedes and what follows that he refers not so much to bodily appetites, but the temptation of the young to pride, conceit, dogmatism, to the display of his own wisdom. You know, when you're younger, you got to do it your own way. It's hard to hear advice from anyone. It's just, it's just, we're going to go this way and we're going to go fast. You know, I was told when I left for ministry, I said there's two problems you're going to face. When you're young, you, you overestimate what you can do in the short run. You overestimate what you can do in the short run. You think, hey, I'm going to change it all. That's why we tell the interns here, don't change anything for a year. Just, just go to the church and serve them. Don't try to change or fix anything. You're just telling them that they haven't been doing it right until you got there. So the youth tend to overestimate what they can do in the short run, and they underestimate what they can do in the long run. You don't realize that the Christian faith is a long game. It's a long game. That's why, that's why we stay at the church for a long time. We're all walking together. And so this idea when he says flee youthful passions, he's, he's speaking to us the temptation to be somebody or to be something. It's not just sexual sin. But, but he's saying flee those things. So, you know, I was told when I was younger, Young men make revolutionaries, and old men make philosophers. And what they mean by that is that young men and young women, they think they can change the world in a day. And they think that if we just move in rebellious ways, we're going to change the world. And old men realize, you're not going to change the world. They become philosophers. They, they become thinking about life. And, and, and while it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, it does show us the tendency that much conflict comes in the church Because of our own pride and conceit and having to be right, having to win arguments, having to always have the last word or having to prove a point or having to bring value to every conversation I make. He's saying flee that because you're not useful to God when you're walking in pride and arrogance. He says rather pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And these are fruits of the Spirit. They don't come in a day. No farmer plants something and expects to harvest it in a week. So he's trying to encourage us toward that endurance, the long view of life and ministry. You will change by God's spirit. You will bear fruit of faith and love, but it takes time. And do you notice what he says? Pursue these things along with those who call upon the Lord with pure of heart. He's saying that for us to change in these areas, we need one another. Now, I think there's a misnomer in the church that oftentimes in the church, uh, we always have to have deep friendships that are the, the kind that, you know, not a lot of people have over the years. I think in the scriptures, the community that we're talking about is rather, w- we and it's wonderful to have friendships, but a lot of the idea of friendships in scripture are related more to me or you pouring into me about seeking the spiritual good of the other. A lot of times this idea of when he says um, about along with those who call upon the Lord, you may draw really close to certain people, but that doesn't mean that those whom you don't draw close to, you cannot do spiritual good for them. A lot of times the relationship may be more 80-20. You may be pouring into them 80% of the time and them returning only 20% to you. But but the picture of the Christian life is that we're seeking the spiritual good of one another, not simply having people that we may feel uniquely close to. I, I want that for each one of us, but I want you to see that we are We are pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call upon the Lord. Those who are in the pilgrimage with us. So there may be people in this church that you may not super, you may not bond super close to. You may not be drawn because your, you know, the experiences and your tastes and dislikes, they're not all the same. But that doesn't mean we cannot be good for one another in this journey in faith. And I think if we get in our minds that this journey that we're on, that we're enduring in, if it's rooted more in, how am I helping my my brothers and sisters move forward, rather than how connected I am, it might be a good place to start. So so you see this pursuit is together. Um, so, So thirdly, so you see here that to endure, we're going to have to divide the word of God rightly. We have to flee temptation wisely. And then thirdly, we have to confront conflict gently. Look with me at 23. At 23, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. These are really significant verses here. I, I, I think you can all, you're drawn to them, and yet you also are convicted by them. Notice what he's saying here, that the Lord's servant is not. He's avoiding controversies. Listen, there are some controversies we cannot avoid. We have to enter. But he's saying avoid those that are foolish and ignorant. In other words, the Lord's servant isn't getting entangled in the controversies of the day. Rather, what the Lord's servant is doing is he's trying to not win arguments he's trying to edify the other person he's trying to work together particularly where there's conflict notice that the lord's servant is not quarrelsome now some of us have you know kind of sharper edged personalities no doubt and so we have to work harder to not sometimes see a quarrel brewing where there may not be a quarrel some of you are much more compliant just by nature And so this is an easier verse to accept and embrace. But we're all called. Do you notice the verse is pushing us towards each other? Because the Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome, but he's to be kind to everyone. If you want to be a servant of the Lord, again, I don't think he's speaking just about leadership here. But if you want to be a servant of God, we're kind to everyone. That's a tall order. I mean, because it's nice to be nice to the nice, As Frank Burns from MASH once said, it's easy to be nice to the nice. You know, it's just easy, but kind to everyone, particularly those who have spoken ill of you. I don't think he's talking about pastors because he says the same thing in Titus 3.2. He says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is a tall order. Friends, we need each other to help here. He says, the Lord's servant is not quarrelsome. He's kind to everyone. He patiently endures evil. Evil, that is, the things being said, or the actions being taken, that we have to endure that patiently. Now, it's not that we just take it and take a beating. He does say that, that you need to be able to teach. And you need to correct your opponents with gentleness. Folks, we tried to walk that out even in, this, uh, even in this past year. Not returning evil for evil. Trying to respond gently. Trying to be silent. That's what we're called to do. That we're trying to be patiently enduring evil. Gently correcting our opponents. Gently correcting our opponents. Uh, It isn't always perceived that way. We live in a hyper-emotionalized world right now. We live in a world marked by victimization. We lived in a world where if you disagree with me, I can cancel you at any time. And and so this is even more important that we try to walk these things out, not because they affect, not because they they always create the right response. They often don't. uh, But they're the right thing to do. It's living rightly. You see the hope that Paul gives to Timothy when he says that God may grant repentance. He might. It isn't a cause of fact. It's a might. He might grant repentance. And notice that our firm but gentle response. You're patiently enduring evil. Your kindness to everyone, but speaking the truth when you need to, but doing it gently, even if they don't, you're seeking that it be gentle, and, and what it, it may grant them repentance. God may use it. You may be that useful vessel. And, and remember what repentance is here. Repentance is moving from error to truth. And repentance is like coming to your senses. Think about the young son of the parable of the prodigal. When he took his portion of his father's income or his wealth. And he went out and spent it on wine, women, and song. And then, of course, when all the money was gone, so were the friends. No shocker there. And he's eating with pigs. And he it says he comes to his senses. He wakes up and says, it's better to be a slave in my father's house. That's what we're dealing with here. That our handling of conflict is for the intention. It's a redemptive end that we're looking that they might repent and be drawn. Now, that's not saying it's all their fault or your fault. Or there's usually a mixture of both. But we want to be found walking in this, uh, in this culture that we live in. So, so, when you think about this, the Lord's servant is gentle, is kind to everyone. Uh, so, so some of the takeaways for you would be uh, the avoidance of controversy. You know, we live in an internet age. And there is controversy, there is cover-up, there are conspiracies. Uh, there is no end to fill your mind with all the things that are, that are going wrong. I, can you avoid some, Can you just look at the diet of your internet usage and your social media? Can you, can you look at what you're casting your eyes to? And, and, and maybe consider making a bit of a diet on it. And, you know, are you reading things that can be more useful at the edification of other people uh, rather than getting your own soul stirred up with what you're reading? Yeah, you know, I remember in seminary, I'd go to a class, and I was a little bit older than some of the seminarian students. Uh, Carol and I had already been married and had a couple kids. But uh, we'd go to a class, and then I, I remember Uh, walking through the cafeteria and these students would be arguing over these esoteric kind of high level stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, oh my goodness, who has the time? We had two children at home under three. It's like, who's got the time for that kind of thing? We love controversies rather than, than speaking to things that actually edify and build up other people. You know, when I leave conversations, I ask, have I encouraged them? Do I know anything about them? Again, if the answer is no to both, I've talked too much. So, so ha- am I working for the edification of others? That's what this Lord's servant is doing. And, and then in the conflict that you have, each one of us has conflict. We have it in our home. We've had it in this church. We have it in the workplace. How are you responding to that? I mean, are you known for being kind? Are you known for you can be firm but is there it's void of meanness you know it can be firm and again now because of our culture you, know, you can do things well and it's often perceived as poor but but is there that effort towards correcting with gentleness and kindness you know we're known by this now, when you, when you read these three verses here, the, the, the last few verses we read, they're really difficult to, you know, you look at them and you're thinking how short we come to these. And, and so just, you know, kind of wrapping the sermon up, you have the, the three points of we want to handle God's word rightly, we want to flee temptation wisely, and we, wanna, and we want to you know, confront conflict gently. Uh, I want to just bring and remind you of Jesus, just for a moment. And when you think about Jesus, he came and he handled the word perfectly. He spoke to the broken, bringing refreshment and healing. He spoke to the pious and the arrogant and rebuked them. You see him handle the word of God rightly. You see Jesus flee temptation wisely. He he flees temptation by the word of God when he's confronted by Satan in the wilderness. You you, you see him not move in these areas of pride conceit, but he was humble and gentle of spirit. You see Jesus confront gently. You think about, you know, this is the Lord's servant is, but the servant of the Lord, at least the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Chapter 42, he's like a bruised reed. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not extinguish a smoldering wick. You see a gentleness to Jesus. You see in Isaiah 50 when he says, um, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I'll not be put to shame. You see that that gentleness, or Isaiah 53, the Lord's servant or the servant of the Lord, he is led, he led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's oppressed and he's afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So Jesus for us is really the picture of what this passage is about. You see him handle the word correctly. You see him Deal with temptation wisely. You see him confront conflict gently. So uh, let's take a moment and just ask Jesus himself by the power of his spirit if he might not refresh some of you who need refreshment or comfort you or or maybe bring you to a point of of, uh, conviction that might result in change. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, whom have we in heaven but you? Father, we know that our flesh and our, our heart may fail, but you are our strength and our portion forever. Father, we read these texts, we want to walk in light of them. We want to be students of the word, rightly understanding it and living in light of it. We, we want to be humble and not bold and arrogant and conceited and these passions of youth. We, we, uh, we want to pursue righteousness and holiness so that we can be useful. We, we want to be used in your kingdom. And, and we want to deal with conflict in a way that mimics Christ and reflects him so that others may see our willingness to to handle it this way. And, and as Jesus' death led to repentance and faith, that our handling of conflict might lead to the same. And so, Father, would you grant that to us as a church? You, you have drawn us through a time of difficulty, and you're bringing healing to us, and we thank you for that, Lord, but we need to grow in these things and I need to grow in these things. we need to grow in these things and and so we need your spirit, Lord, you tell us uh, that we can ask and you'll give wisdom and you'll give your spirit. and so Father, uh, for the saints before me, and for those that are on the fringe of faith, father and and they hear, this is what the Christian is. Would they, would they be drawn, Father? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you reveal to them the, not just the brevity of life, but the, the vanity of trying to draw meaning and significance out of the temporal things of this world and recognize that apart from you being at the center of our world, life has no, it has no meaning. It makes no sense. And so, Father, grant to us all that we need now to walk in a manner that's worthy of your name. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.